So how's, that's pretty good, huh? This sounds okay. So tonight I want to talk about uh, exploring dosa with wisdom. Dosa being, and I'm sure you know about it, so the Pali word for what is <clears throat> often translated as one of the three unwholesome roots. It's often translated as hatred. But let's say in this case, using dosa to encompass all the many, many states of mind or mental states or emotions that come from either the, the pushing away of the unpleasant from an angry side or the fleeing from the unpleasant of fear. So it's all the way from hatred to mild irritation to grumpiness to resistance, the whole, the whole show. And I deliberately, for me, and even in my own practice, I use the word dosa rather than uh, aversion all the time or whatever other specific, partly because it's broader, but partly for me because it also helps me to have less um, unhelpful associations. Because it's really looking at it as simply a habit of heart and mind that the Buddha talked about a lot, but we can explore it as habit rather than identifying with it and either blaming or hating or totally buying into it. But it's definitely a frequent visitor in many of our heart and mind experiences. No? Right. And all the different shows we can relate. And um, remember when Guy spoke about the second noble truth, Tanha, that, that thirst, that craving, you know, the two sides of it are the greed for the pleasant and the pulling away from the unpleasant. So doses the, all the different ways of pulling away. And as we've said, deeply, deeply conditioned reaction of mind to unpleasant sense experience, any of the six sense doors, to just like leap away almost immediately. But it's really in some level one way that it's kind of I don't know, sad is the word, but it's a, a, arises really from our not fully understanding the first noble truth. So, you know, we talk about it, as Guy spoke about it, the first noble truth being, well, you know, the whole thing, the, the dukkha of just regular unpleasant, painful thing, the dukkha that, that pleasant things change, and then the, the constant ongoing uh, insubstantiality, unreliability. And as the Buddha said, each of the truths has an action that goes with it. So the first noble truth is to be understood. Not to be hated, not to be, you know, somehow find a way to avoid it, but to be understood. And the understanding of it, of course, doesn't mean we, then we live in a quagmire of the unpleasant more than before, but we actually, it frees, it frees our heart and mind, it frees us from the suffering of living in, in disharmony, in contention with so many moments of life. I think the real uh, the suffering of dosa on the superficial level, it's obvious, it's unpleasant. People, so-called aversive types, the type who, that dosa may be the first thing that comes up. We all have all of it 
don't go getting it wrong, but those are the types say, oh, I want to be a greedy type because that's like more pleasant. You know, <laughs> greedy types, being that I'm a dosa type, greedy types are just more lost in their delusion. They think it's pleasant. They're just lost and craving and getting things. So they're hopeless. But <laughs> dosa types, at least you know you're suffering. You may not know why. You may blame somebody else, but you really don't miss it. Except when we do, and that's what's really amazing. So anyway... <laughs> It's, it's like the tragedy of not understanding the first noble truth, the real like tragedy of the, the power of this dosa reactive to unpleasant is that it, it solidifies and it keeps us lost in this unreal world of separation and not understanding and me and you and other and good and bad and the whole thing. So, I read one Zen teacher, I forget who, said, you know, that dosa, this reaction of fear, anger, aversion, whatever, is rooted in maybe the unspoken belief in our mind that somehow I can hold myself separate from this unpleasant, unwanted, or painful experience that's happening right now. And that's really the heart of it. Somehow... I don't have to be with this. And the fact that it's here, there's something really wrong. We know that. But it's so much, so much wasted energy in our life of trying to hold ourselves separate, of trying to deny this moment of reality as it is. It's first it's impossible because this is how it is and we get into so much confusion and suffering and we can't shut down selectively. I think that's what I certainly I try, you know, if I can hold myself separate from this, if I can somehow shut down and not feel, not know, do something else not to feel it, then everything will, you know, be okay. But then as Pema Chodron says, then we spend our life tensed up, trying to hold ourselves away from unpleasant experience. She says, it's like we walk around our lives tensed up like we were sitting in the dentist's chair. You know, I love that image. You try to relax. They didn't even start yet, you know. Just the sound of the drill, you know, just hearing it when you're in the waiting room. So that's a good example to see. So, so I just want to talk about some, I call it like a nuts and bolts kind of talk, just some examples from my experience of working with dukkha, with um, dosa in different ways. And then you'll have 10 million of your own, hopefully. So this is an invitation to bring satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom, to any moment that we recognize some aspect of dosa is the quality in the mind, in the heart at the moment. It's simply another arising conditioned experience. It doesn't have to be something we hate or fear or afraid to look at or so identify with. So, as far as I can tell, the the most immediate moment-to-moment mechanism for its arising in a moment of experience is what we've talked about before in that sutta called the, the dart, where the Buddha was so clear and I think Bonte and I have both talked about it, but <clears throat> that mechanism whereby 
um, an unawakened worldling, that's probably most of us, um, when an unpleasant feeling arises in the body and they get all upset in the mind so you shoot yourself with a second dart, right? But then saying the habit of resistance to unpleasant feeling tone comes to underlie the mind, the heart. This to me is the salient point. So that when unpleasant feeling tone arises, the habit is so habituated, yeah, it would be, it's a habit, it's so conditioned from how many mind moments in our life, when you remember that there's something like 17 million mind moments in the blink of an eye, who knows, who counted those, I don't know, but it's a lot, a lot. In every mind moment there's contact. How many is there unpleasant feeling tone and how many is there the, that knee-jerk reaction of bouncing away, you know? So it's so, as the Buddha said, it becomes to underlie the mind. And then, and then the only response we know, the only way to get out of that is to crave for the pleasant. So that's how the, the, the wanting comes to underlie the mind. So it starts so quickly. And as, as we've seen from having the, the wonderful opportunity to be so quiet, to really turn our attention on our hearts and minds, to see how the mind works, many of you are seeing this at times. But we also see how quick and subtle feeling tone is. I mean, in daily life, how often would we notice it? I don't think I ever would have noticed it in my whole life if I hadn't read about it from the Buddha. You know, I don't know how he sat down and figured this stuff out. It's amazing. But so it, mostly we don't go, oh, there's the, the habit of resistance to unpleasant that underlies the mind. I see the attention jumping away from this unpleasant sense contact. And now I see the papancha that fuels aversion starting. But sometimes we can see that. But mostly we don't see that. And as Chokinima, who's a, he's a, one of the brothers of um, Sotni Rinpoche, he says, notice how easily the mind, the heart is influenced simply by a pleasant or unpleasant sight, sound, thought, etc. So quickly into an immediate mood. That's the thing. It goes boom like this from unpleasant into an immediate mood. And that's often the first place our awareness can pick it up. But Sometimes we can really notice the process where it begins. And that to me is really interesting because it doesn't have to then flare into such a huge, overwhelming state of heart and mind. So an invitation to explore this with interest. As Utejaniya says, just to see how does dosa do its job? It's just doing what it does. What is its job and how does it do it? takes it out of the realm of the personal. Just really seeing such a cause and effect relationship. Like, oh, wow, look at that. And when we can, at times, of course, there's times we're identified, but at times when we can bring our interest in and just be watching it, really, and this is really from personal experience a lot, that sometimes you can just bring in and see what's actually happening. And it's still unpleasant, but the whole story that, of course, gets fed from me, 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 can dissipate, cannot be so real, and we can just kind of see what's going on. So that's my invitation.
tonight. So just some different ways to invite us to explore. Remembering that when we talk about mind or heart, a moment of chitta, consciousness with whatever mental factors, well, Guy talked about it all last night, the five aggregates, arising moment to moment. Each moment of arising consciousness mental factor is a new moment, which is the only way that makes any of this workable. It also means when we're talking about what's arising, it's what's happening right now. There's only ever this moment. So starting from that, where I want to start to talk about this, to bring satipanya, Ajahn Buddha Dasa used to talk about satipanya at the sense doors a lot, just being right at the point of sense contact with mindfulness and wisdom, with the wisdom of just not adding extra liking or disliking or association, just what's happening right now. So this has helped me so much, and it helps me in daily life too when I remember that remembering the Buddhist thing of the resistance to unpleasant and all the emotions that come is arising from that habit of jumping away from unpleasant sense contact feeling tone right now. So that's the thing to really look at. It's whatever's fueling the uh, resistance, the aversion, the dosa in whatever way is coming up. It's beginning from some sense contact that's happening right now. So, you know, it's more easy to see if it's an, a sound that triggers unpleasant feeling or a sensation in the body or a smell or a taste. But of course, quite frequently, the sense contact's going to be mental, a thought, a mood, an emotion, whatever. And even so, recognize it's happening now. So take fear, for instance. When fear comes up, there's all the thoughts about the future and the fear is saying all these things that are going to happen in the future and we can get really lost in that world. But the fear arises to begin with from some sense contact that's arising in this moment. Maybe a memory came up. The memory came up with really painful, unpleasant feelings, you know, moods, um, feeling, not feeling tone, but feelings. Really unpleasant, really scary, boom, you know, it jumps really quick away into fear. And then the fear is saying, oh, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And fear also has the quality, one of the jobs of fear, I think, this is me saying this, I haven't read this in the Avidhamma. One of the jobs of fear is it's saying, because I'm here, because fear is here, I wouldn't be here if something really, really bad wasn't about to happen. Or just having so because I'm here, you should believe me, you know. And yeah, you know, in the in the fight or flight, when we need to protect ourselves, sometimes that's true. But when it's this spinning, 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 and we're lost in the story and the future and the past, sometimes just take a moment to see what's the sense contact happening now. It's a thought, an unpleasant thought, and a mood. It's happening in this moment. We can explore that. Sorrow, guilt, fury, regret. They're all different flavors of dosa and they, as they, they bounce away, they pull away from the original sense contact and into all the stories, it's often, you know, you can't think your way back into it sometimes. 
but you can land in, say it's way deep in, in guilt. You know this story, but at some point it's like, what's happening right now? You hear how we're always saying when there's strong emotion, see if you can just feel what's happening in your body or notice kind of what the mental miasma of it feels like rather than the story. That's because that's what's happening now. The thoughts are happening now too, the content of the thoughts not. And so when we land in what's happening now, and often the, for me, the physical associated uh, sensations that come with a strong dosa emotion are extremely unpleasant. And so you touch the, bring the awareness in, just touch that unpleasant. And then the resistance habit gets doubly strong, right? And bounces back into the story again. But come back, come back. This is where the mindfulness wisdom can help us move in the opposite direction from the habit of just run for your life when there's unpleasant experience. It's like, come back. Okay, just feel this guilt feels like this. Oh, that's awful. Okay, it's awful. Guilt feels like this. Oh, no, nah, this and this, and I did that. Nah, nah, nah. And we'll spin in it for half an hour. I think that's actually more awful <laughs> than just coming back and, oh, guilt feels like this. When we can do it, we can't always. But just recognizing that the dosa mood arises from some unpleasant sense contact now. And noticing then how the attention, what it does is kind of it's like a knee-jerk reaction that pulls away. Just that go away from it, you know, whether it goes to the pleasant or it just gets lost. And in that, and this is a moment-to-moment experience, in that gap, you could say, where the awareness, the attention is not in that moment connecting with just what is, say it's an unpleasant sound, let's keep it simple. And it's like, oh, I don't like that. Why is that person making that sound? Why is it? And in that gap where the mindfulness isn't just connected, all the papancha, fueled by dosa, comes flowing in. Right, can you notice that? Right, you've seen this happen. Right? This is not rocket science so far. And it happens because of the, the attention then just kind of went away and that just, there's not sati right now, there's not mindfulness right there. And because it jumped away from a little bit of resistance, boom, then that dosa, is subtly flavoring the perception, subtly flavoring the thought, and it just starts spinning more and more and more. And so the papancha is fueled by the dosa, and then the more it goes, when there's uh, dosa kind of flavoring the mind, flavoring the perception, we can't recognize what's going on accurately. And then the, the new perceptions and the new propancha all start to have this flavor of just something wrong. Have, have you noticed, like people say, they, they're sitting in the dining room and they think they're fine and suddenly they recognize that every person that walked by, that some horrible negative judgment came up. Or maybe that's only me. You <laughs> know, <laughs> <laughs> after a while you go, huh, maybe there's dosa in the mind. What's surprising is how long it can take. First, it's just, they, they look slumpy. Their socks are not matching. I can't believe how much noise they're making taking the fork out of the thing, you know? And after a while, they go, hmm, seems like I'm being a little bit picky here. A little bit of aversion going on. 
So what we're really doing here is learning not to always just give the focus to the object, but really getting interested in the quality of the mind that's aware. So when this cycle of aversion fueling the papancha and then kind of flavoring perception comes on, it can really, you know, get on a roll. And it's a lot of suffering. I'm sure many of you know that. Because we either judge ourselves or just the aversion itself is suffering or we really believe it and then we wonder what's wrong with everybody else or whatever it is. But that dosa is a very unpleasant experience because it's so separating. We, we know we're not really quite landing somehow, but we don't know how. The Buddha said that uh, once arisen, well, ill will or dosa, it actually strengthens through unwise attention to the, well, unwise attention to the unpleasant or is actually translated as repugnant aspect of something. So you know that the example Thich Nhat Hanh always gives of if you have one tooth that's a little bit rough and all the rest of your teeth are fine, where does your tongue go? Again and again and again. You know, you're not feeling all your other teeth all the time, are you? But you're just sitting there. It just has to go there. It just has to feel that roughness. It's not a big thing, but it's, it's, it's a habit of mind. And so, you know, we've often said if, if you're really annoyed at someone, you keep looking at that person and it just kind of spikes the annoyance. But man, do we want to look at that person? For whatever reason, I mean, it's like uh, not helpful, but we do that. And then it, it kind of solidifies whatever the view, the explanation, they're bad or I'm bad or it shouldn't be happening or this, whatever. And then that flavoring, that distortion of the ongoing perceptions grows and grows and grows. So dosa in the mind as it's growing, it can distort even sense contact that might have been kind of neutral at another time. I remember one retreat I was, I don't remember what the story doesn't really matter, but definitely there was a dose of mind going on, had been for some time. And then it would get to where just a sound would come and I would hear, I remember the radiators used to make a lot of little pinging noises in here. It's gotten a lot quieter. And it would ping and I'd literally hear it like an explosion. You know, just so unpleasant. And then the mind, I remember one time I was actually, I had been on staff here, I, I found myself, don't do this, running around down in the basement in the uh, furnace room saying that there's got to be something wrong with these heaters that they are making this kind of noise. Like I know something about heaters, you know. (laughs) And so I'm running around, there's these giant heaters, I'm going, this can't be right, this can't, just so, you know, the dosage is just distorting everything. You know, and so it leads to action. As the Buddha says, we can't see clearly our own good or the good of another or the good of both. When there's, when the mind, the heart is obsessed with ill will, with dosa. The least we can start to do is just recognize 
<laughs> it's like I'm running around there before I can recognize, oh yeah, maybe it's just aversion completely distorting the perception of the sense contact. I don't even remember if I recognized that. I think I just gave up because I didn't know what to do to fix the furnace. And I did know better than to write a note to the maintenance. So you too, when you're running around like that, just know better than to write a note to the maintenance because it would have been embarrassing. So it distorts, we can't see clearly. We can't recognize accurately. It distorts our judgment as to what to do. And also we're so... Uh, it's such a habit to really interpret the unpleasant as wrong or bad, and it's so in there to avoid it, to do whatever we can to avoid it, that sometimes not realizing and not, not having um, clear recognition of what would be for my good or another, we can make all kinds of crazy decisions in order to try and avoid a projected unpleasant feeling. For example, a friend told me quite some years ago, she um, had a very busy life and she, would, she uh, taught Dharma, did some Dharma teaching, she taught weekends, and a very close, very close friend of hers, very close, requested that she come to another city quite some hours drive from here and teach a weekend. So it was a very dear friend. But, but my friend who told me this story, it came at a time that she was completely busy, to even fit in the time to go to that city and, and to drive down there and do the teaching and all would have stressed her out. It was like almost crazy to even think she could fit in the time. She could maybe just barely do it, but it would have, you know, been crazy. But when she thought about telling her friend no, the fear of the feeling of how unpleasant that would be, her friend would be hurt. And, but it wasn't even that her friend was hurt, it was more how she would feel at thinking that her friend was hurt and she'd let her down and all of it. So it took her weeks to be able to actually get real and say, this is impossible, I love you, but I can't do it. The friend, of course, was fine. You know, it was all projection. But when she saw how close she came to doing that, creating a whole lot of more unpleasant experience than just the saying no, but we can't tell clearly because the, the, that deep ingrained sense is unpleasant is bad and so we should be able to avoid it, to hold myself separate from this uncomfortable and unwanted situation. So that's one aspect. Hmm. So meeting whatever place we mindfulness notices the dosa arising, whether it's right at the sense contact or way off into fear or fury, are, this is the middle way, the Buddha's middle way, bringing mindfulness wisdom right to the point of recognition. I mean, our common, two most common habitual responses when we find, when we recognize or we're just experiencing unpleasant dosa emotions are either more dosa towards ourself, right? We get really aversive to ourselves. We think, what's wrong with me? A lot of self-judgment, a lot of stories of all the aversive thing in the past, or this shouldn't be here, avoid, deny, repress, the whole thing. And often, it's so often um, people are having some 
some experience of dosa, maybe not huge, but the self-judging mind that comes in around it. And then people say, well, there's all these multiple layers of dosa and you get lost in each story, you know. There's this, you know, thing going on and then there's this self-judging and why am I self-judging and I see it's from my history. Oh, my history, but I shouldn't be thinking of my history. I'm really self-judging and that's also bad. And we're in all the little story. Just get big and notice that's just dosa, flavoring all the thoughts. You don't have to land on and believe the self-judging any more than you have to believe that the maintenance guys don't know how to take care of the furnace. That's just dosa fueling thought. Just that the self-judging one's a little closer to home. So that's one way. That's the dosa way of dealing with dosa. Hate it, blame yourself, blame others. The other way, and is sometimes that we really embrace it, or anger, or fear as really uh, an important real emotion that can lead to action. And that's kind of like you could say the, the greed way of really going for it. Sometimes, and it can be, you know, at times, dosa, anger, even fear. Fear doesn't feel good, but they're energizing. It brings up a lot of energy, you know, especially if we've been repressing fear or anger, and that all that energy is stultified. So sometimes when it comes up, there can really be a lot of energy. And the, the misperception we can make is that energy, think that that energy is only available through the dosa as if it couldn't come, or the greed, as if it couldn't come another way. I've, I've more than once had people say to me, really sincerely, deep in practice, saying, you know, if I give up uh, greed and dosa, as if we could just give it up, that would be nice. If I give up greed and dosa, then what am I going to do? Just sit in my room the rest of my life? How am I going to do anything? And that always, like, I find that so sad. So you know, the only motivations for action are greed and dosa. You can't imagine something other. The Dalai Lama. Someone asked him about why does there seem to be such a lack of compassion in human society? And he said, perhaps we just pay less attention to compassion and caring. We reinforce it less. Whereas in some sense, we fully embrace hostility and anger as an emotional state, fueling it or reinforcing it. So this isn't the Dalai Lama now, this is me. But when we're really hating you know, fear, when we're really hating anger, we're really giving, not we, okay, but that dosa is still is giving it the power, not really seeing what it is. Dalai Lama again. If we were to give the same amount of energy, attention, and reinforcement, and by reinforcement is simply what James was saying the other night, wise attention, mindfulness to the wholesome is reinforcing it. If we were to give the same amount of energy, attention, and reinforcement to compassion and caring, they would definitely be stronger. And not only compassion, we can act from wisdom, we can act from determination, we can act from caring, we can act from generosity. There's all kinds of 
wholesome motivations that we can act from. So it's, again, it's just um, conditioned. And dosa is such a strong force at times that it does take us over. We don't know how to move out of it. And so it's like, wow, this is so real. This is what we know. It's hard to trust the other. It's hard to see that being able to move step aside from the dosa and move from wisdom, move from connection, can sometimes have a really strong effect. Okay, this story I heard on uh, the radio about, it's called non-complementary behavior. But I take it as acting not from fear and aversion dosa when it would be the normal way to act. So there's this story they were telling about two families didn't say where, somewhere in the States. It sounded as if it was a suburb because they were outside, kind of in the backyard of their house, but away from the house, having like an evening uh, dinner together, you know, like picnic tables and having a nice meal and wine. And, and I guess there were some woods around, some forest. And so suddenly into the middle of that, a man came with a gun out of kind of nowhere. They didn't know where he came from. And he came and held the gun on these people and and said, give me your money, you know, or I'll shoot. So, of course, panic, fear, aversion, the whole thing. But first they say, well, we don't have any money. We're out here in the middle. We don't have any money. And he was just getting really angry. He says, I don't care. Give me your money. So the first response from someone was kind of like angry. Well, what would your mother say if if she saw you here? And that didn't work. He says, I don't have a mother. So they were getting scared, but then suddenly just some person, one of them, just had this sense, you know, probably didn't think it through, but could move away from the, the hatred and the fear and just looked at this guy and said, would you like a glass of wine? He said, oh, okay. <laughs> so he took the glass of wine and sat down at the table with them. So I don't know what they're feeling, but they're drinking the wine with him. They start chatting back and forth. And so they're chatting for a while. And, that, and at one point, the man says, well, I see I've come to the wrong place. <laughs> so he gets up and he, he you know, says uh, hugs. He wants hugs. <laughs> and then he said, okay, I'm leaving. So they offer him a glass of wine. He leaves with his glass of wine. They run like hell into the house and lock the door. I mean, they weren't idiots. You know, they ran like hell into the house and locked the door. And, but then later, you know, when they went out, he had very very carefully placed his empty wine glass outside the door and gone away. So, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't think that would work, but sometimes it does. Not always, of course, but just to know sometimes it does. So, satipanya, meeting with simple awareness as it's showing up now. The Sharon says, opening to the truth of things as they are is what frees our mind from fear and selfishness. However things are. Okay, so now I give a couple of little examples for me and you find your own of different ways of bringing sati, bringing mindfulness wisdom at whichever point you might notice the unpleasant or the aversion. So the first, easiest in a way, when the sense contact that's unpleasant, it's really obvious what it is. But it's not something you can fix, and it keeps on going, right? And it's really driving you nuts. 
So to actually be able, you know, you can be seeing the aversion, going, oh, no, 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 but you're really spinning in it. When you're actually able to say, let me try to just bring mindfulness wisdom right to the point of contact, just with the hearing, and see what happens. Try and watch that whole cause and effect chain that the Buddha described. So simple example, practicing in Burma. We have a 10 million practicing in Burma. In terms of noise, it's a great, great place for stories. So the first time I was ever practicing there in my little hut, and I had to sit in my hut because in the meditation hall, there were no chairs in those years, and I, I can't sit cross-legged anymore, so I had to sit in my hut, which was okay. But that's part of the story. I couldn't go back to the hall. And so across the little road, not even as far as the back of the wall, of course there's construction. That goes without saying. If you're in a meditation center in Burma, there'll be construction. And <laughs> so uh, just across the hall, they decided partway into my several weeks retreat, they were um, sanding long, long, long uh, strips of wood, you know, with an electric sander. Do you know what an electric sander sounds like? Do you know how noisy? <laughs> From 7.30 in the morning until 5.30 in the afternoon. Really loud, really close. Sometimes they take a little break, but you didn't know when, so you couldn't count on it. So, you know, you go through all the things. I'm just equanimous. It's just, you know, but underneath, if we don't notice the, the pulling away, because that's the pulling away, I don't want to be there with that then the resistance grows and the aversion grows because you don't quite notice it. You think you're there until suddenly, you know, you're going bonkers. Then, then after a few days, they brought in a second sander that was in a different key. And so they'd both be going all day. And finally, and usually it's always finally because we try everything else until you realize the only thing to do is totally surrender into the point of contact. Hearing is like this. Just totally surrender. No attention pulling away, even a little bit. Hearing is like this unpleasant. And then it's just what it is. You know, like the thing I, qu- I quoted from Ajahn Sumedho, I, you, I can't bear this another moment. And then I found that I could. And it's just you really, something like that that isn't really hurting one. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't in danger. There was nothing I could do other than go out and yell at the guy. There's nothing I could do. There was nowhere else I could go. You just die into the sound, that point of sense, contact, and unpleasant, and see the whole thing. And in those moments, it's really quite okay. The whole sense of story and struggle is gone. Sure, there's a later moment when the mind is tired, you forget, and you know the habit of jumping away from unpleasant comes up again. But then the mindfulness recognizes how much more complicated that makes everything, and it's actually easier. And just to come back and be, okay, that's unpleasant, sounds like that. Remember once in another place in Burma, uh, (laughs) never mind, I'll never finish if I tell that. Um, (laughs) I could give you so many examples from my life, you don't need them all. Okay, so that's one, when you can go right to the point of sense contact. Of course, a lot of times we can't do that. Sometimes what we miss there's not a huge dose of storm going on, but you can just something's off a little bit. And often what we don't recognize is kind of like a, a more mm, subtle, uh, pervasive background mood. I think Guy might have mentioned this in the instructions the other day, that we don't quite pick it up, but just somehow everything seems a little off, you know? 
You go out to look at that beautiful moonlight last night. I don't know if you saw that. It's incredible. If you're in the right mind state, it's incredible. If you're not, like, ah, oh, the moon. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? It was so joyful, you know. Let me have some tea. Ah, the tea. You know, you go, what's going on? And then you start with just a background mood. So then the question is, well, what, what's triggering it? What was the sense contact? So that can just be kind of fun. It can be fun to explore and see. So another a friend told me he was on retreat here and he had a day like that where just this subtle off little background dosa, he couldn't tell what. And finally he thought, okay, let me just sit here and bring full attention. What's happening now? Quit trying to figure it out. Quit trying to just, what's happening now? And he brought his attention into his body and mind and he thought, oh, the sweatshirt he had on was a little bit tight. And when he moved in a certain way, it pulled and it was unpleasant. And he didn't notice that. That's all it takes sometimes. It doesn't have to be, you know, the horrible thing of the world. It's like your thing's a little tight and you don't notice it's unpleasant. The mind leaps away and dosa comes flying in. Really interesting to see takes the personal out. You don't then need to go, how stupid am I? You just go, wow, look at that. Cause and effect, dosa doing its job. But mindfulness can do its job and come in and say, oh, that's what's happening. And then wisdom does its job, which is to say, okay, tight, tight movement feels like this. And all the other stuff doesn't have to go on. Or, with a thought, like the thought of, I'm no good, I can't do this, right? You kind of know it's there, but kind of not. It's so familiar that we are believing it and not recognizing that that thought itself has, it comes, you know, it's perceived as unpleasant feeling tone. So it's unpleasant. We don't quite know it, we just think, yeah, it's unpleasant, not, it's not unpleasant, but it's unpleasant because I'm so bad, I am bad, and that's unpleasant. And not recognizing that the arising thought itself is actually the sense contact that is leading to the mind jumping away, feeling the aversion. So again, noticing the state in the mind. Noticing sometimes the idea in the back of the mind, the view that You know, like that, I just can't do it right. It shouldn't be like this. Or a lot of people have told me, maybe not a lot, but a few, noticing just some little idea in the mind, it could just be a little bit better than this. This just isn't quite good enough. And if they look at the ideas, like what isn't quite good enough? You don't even know. I'm just walking in the forest and present, but somehow it's not quite good enough. So when we can notice that idea in the background, oh, right, coming with unpleasant Vedana. Okay, just see it, that's all. And then of course, there's the times when this subtlety is not within the realm of mindfulness or recognition. And we just can recognize we're in a huge storm of fear or anger or disappointment, whatever form of dosa it is still knowing at whatever level mindfulness can come to meet it. Where, now meet it as it is. Not the story, but really kind of letting the awareness come in and and be with that energy. The energy of that difficult feeling, of that, say it's anger, say it's fear. So 
you know, the, the ultimate, either we totally embrace it, which means we go off into the story and just keep feeding it. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's also not saying anger shouldn't be here, fear shouldn't be here, push it away and let me just feel my foot pressing on the ground. And that's impossible because it's just too strong. But bringing the awareness in to notice the quality in the mind that's being aware. It isn't subtle, but we can really learn how to bring mindfulness in in a big way. So so maybe sitting is almost like the energy is too strong. You know, get lost in the story. Go out and walk. Walk really fast. And not so much analyzing, but you're feeling that, and calling energy for lack of a better word, but just feeling that mental state, that aversion, that dosa, that just swirling, swirling. But mindfulness is there with it in the big picture. In fact, sometimes I call it stomping meditation. You go out and you're just walking, walking, anger, anger, anger. So it's not tidy. It's not all anger, anger, unpleasant sensation, negative thought, la la. It's like, but it's still mindfulness when you're not just going, yeah, and they did that, and by God, I'm going to get them, and my God, anger feels like this. Let it rip. It's not going to do anything. If you really don't have to be afraid of it, we start to actually see the nature, even of this strong anger, the wisdom of being with whatever's occurring, even with the unpleasant, At some point with steady mindfulness, wisdom comes in and we start to see things as they really are. Even a huge, strong mental state. This is from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. He's saying, I is just a thought. We've been through that. Now you all have that covered. (laughs) Thoughts and, and feelings, thoughts and emotions have no intrinsic solidity, form, shape, or color. When a thought, a mood of anger arises in the mind with such force that you feel aggressive and destructive, is that anger actually holding a weapon? Is it, can it burn things like a fire? Can it crush things like a rock? Carry them away like a violent river? No, anger, like any other thought or mood or feeling, has no true self-existence not even a definite location. It is just like wind roaring in empty space. I love that. Let it roar in the empty space of mindfulness wisdom. So instead of allowing these wild thoughts to enslave us, we realize their essential emptiness. When you see through this energy of hatred within, you will discover there is not one single enemy left outside. Otherwise, even if you could overpower everyone in the whole world, your hatred would only grow stronger. Indulging it will never make it subside. Examine the nature of hatred or any of the dosa states. You will find that it is no more than a thought and a feeling. And when wisdom sees it as it is, It can dissolve like a cloud in the sky. I know it's not that easy, but sometimes that happens. The only way this clear seeing of wisdom can come about is through the steadiness of just simple presence with what's occurring, with the difficult, with the unpleasant. It's the opposite of what 
our deep habits are. But this is the avenue not only into understanding with wisdom like the nature of difficult emotions, but it's, it's what is our avenue into understanding the nature of reality in all the different ways. You know, the jewel in the heart of, of the understanding of the first noble truth, in the heart of the ability to just be with the difficult, to bear witness, is the movement, the natural um, expression of the bearing witness into compassion, into love, into generosity, into recognizing the insubstantial nature, which doesn't mean, you know, like a cold emptiness. It's more that sense of, of non-separation, the connectedness of all of us. That what um, I mentioned in my earlier talk that uh, Archbishop Tutu talks about the Ubuntu. We're all, we're all connected. Oh, I have so much more. Okay, two things. One, just quickly. Of course, sometimes when it's a real storm of fear, guilt, anger, even what I just said to do, stomp, let, let it re- wind roar in empty space, even touching it, it's just so much stronger than the energy and the mindfulness at that time. That's not something, just recognizing, you know, you, you open for a moment into the really difficult and you just feel it's overwhelmed, completely identified again, right? And even though intellectually we have the tools, at that point the mindfulness just isn't the equal of the strength of the dosa. So we recognize, and we've talked about that a lot, when, when it's just, when by bringing attention to the difficult, the dosa just grows and grows then that's when we keep saying to, to then shift your awareness, skillful means to something more neutral or something pleasant so that we don't drown in the difficult situation. I have another friend, she just did do retreats years ago and she had a lot of really difficult emotion and trauma stuff would come up and she said she really learned it was like her, her son, she had grown sons and they would tell her they would go to the ocean in Hawaii or somewhere with big waves. And she'd go out in the wave and when a big wave would start coming, she'd always turn her back to it and run. And of course that just like, you know, that just knocks you over. And her sons would always say, Ma, no, you gotta dive into the wave, not turn around and run. But she'd always turn around and run and get whacked. And she said just once she was able to just dive into the wave. So it's sort of like that, we're diving into the wave, but sometimes all we can do is put a toe in. Just put a toe in, and then it, oh, it's whacking us. So turn your attention to something neutral. Really, we're taking care of the awareness. We're taking care to re-recognize, to refresh the awareness so it can come back into being able to be present without all the distortions of the flavoring. So it's really important, as, as Tejania says, to, to take care of the awareness to adjust your attitude first to see when it's really too strong like that. So it's not about you just have to to go into it and drown. But again, it's mindfulness wisdom to see, to recognize the awareness isn't strong enough right now. So shift to something neutral or even even pleasant. It can be helpful when I find it's just this total, total, you know, flavoring of aversion, but big time. I'll conscious, and it seems little, but it, can really help to consciously open up awareness and just see what other 
sense contacts are arising now that are neutral or even pleasant. They don't have to be as important, you know, as the big one that's, that's fueling the dosa, but it really helps. Thich Nhat Hanh would say, and I, when I first read this, I thought, but that's ridiculous. But now I know what he meant in the Vietnam War when he would tell us, he, he worked in the Vietnam War with the young social workers who would work with both sides, with people in the villages, with people that were suffering, so much suffering in the middle of a war. And, you know, they'd get overwhelmed, you know. We, of course we get overwhelmed with the suffering, with, this, with the difficulty in ourselves and in the world. No one's saying we don't. And he would, he would say, I would tell the young social workers to go at night out into the field and smell the fresh smells of the herbs and the flowers. And I thought, they're in the middle of a war, and he's saying, go in the field and smell the fresh herbs at night? What is, I mean, but, but that's it. It's like, it, that's an intellectual resistance. But what he's doing is just this, just what Tejaniya says, taking the attention that's glommed into the uh, dosa-filled state and doesn't know how to get out and shifting it to something neutral, to something pleasant, not as a running away, but to refresh the awareness, to come back to wisdom, to come back to balance. So just little things. And try, I don't know if, I have a very critical mind in that way. You know, I just say, oh, that's stupid. Okay, I'm really suffering when I think about the suffering in the world. I should go out and look at the beautiful moon. And then my mind goes, yeah, you can look at the moon. You have the right to look at the moon. You're lucky you can look at the moon. What about everything else? That's just dosa again. Just connect, just allow the mindfulness, the quality of the chitta to refresh itself. Because really what we're doing is moving from our obsessive relationship to each object that arises, not using each object to give us a sense of self or good or bad or self-justification, just the objects, whatever it is. It serves the function of opening us into the quality of mindfulness and awareness again. So this is really, really more of what we're doing. And then when, when the awareness is balanced, we can come back and be perhaps with the difficult experience. I found in, in my own self, in my life, that often the times when I've been feeling, not lost in aversion, not noticing that, but just feeling disconnected, either isolated or you know, just kind of off disconnected. It could be in daily life or it could be on retreat. And I stop and, and kind of look over time and I often see that there's some difficult emotion either that's present that I'm trying not to see or there's a thought that it might be coming and I don't want to feel it. Just something the mind doesn't want to feel. And in trying to not feel that, the sense of being alienated and disconnected from everything because we can't shut down selectively, you know? And then we say, oh, I remember once was my, someone in my family was suffering a lot. Nothing I could do about it. And just thinking about it was so painful. And the sadness and the, the sense of helplessness. Helplessness is a really unpleasant feeling to feel. It was so painful that kind of, I'd kind of like, oh, no, let's not go there. You know, it's just not, I mean, not consciously right, but just a little bit pulling back. So then you pull back from everything. 
And when I could see, oh, right, that's what's happening. Wow, really feeling helpless is like this. It feels, it feels crummy. Being helpless doesn't suddenly transform to feeling good. Don't get me wrong. It still feels crummy. But the, uh, that steady willingness to just bear witness with mindfulness wisdom to your own personal experience or in the world, the steadiness of being present, at some point it does open out of the alienation into, again, the sense of connectedness with life, the tenderness of life, the beauty of life, the sense of appreciation also of the good. We can't do that with an act of will. And it's amazing how that comes. At times, then we forget again with the willingness or the ability just for moments to be present, to bear witness with the difficult. All right, one more story about that. I was just trying to think which way to go it would be the most helpful. I don't know. But anyway, so how... And this is kind of a simple story, not huge suffering in the world, how we can work with on retreat. But um, so some years ago, a long time ago, many years ago, I started to um, have some symptoms that turned out to be an autoimmune disease. And at that time, it was quite painful. And once they figured out what it was, that didn't help because there's nothing they could do about it. And, you know, it could go how these are. They could go in all these different directions. And so... The way my mind related to it at the beginning, and this is, you know, common. First is denial, this isn't happening, what can we do? Then just kind of not trying to feel, or self-blame, this is my fault, what did I do wrong? I was in the wrong place. If I was really a good uh, spiritual person, I would be able to have the right thoughts and not get sick. You know, have you ever had that thought, if I could really figure it out? Anyway, Louise Hay, I don't know, she's got a lot to answer for. Um, <laughs> but then at one point I, I thought, hmm, Ramana Maharshi died of cancer. He has something going on, though, with understanding things, you know. So, hello, everybody gets sick, everybody gets sick and died, dies. But anyway, this whole self-blame thing, and then the fear, the aversion, if I can't walk very well now, I'll never be able to walk the I'll never be able to do this. What's it going to be like in the future? And all the fear and the negativity mushrooming. And then everybody coming and saying, try this, try that. How are you going to live your life? What should you do? And it's a lot of suffering and a lot of confusion. Because, you know, the 10 million things to try, what should I do? Cold is really hard for me. People said, well, you should leave here and go live in Arizona. And you should not eat uh, any more gluten, of course. And you should give up caffeine and sugar, and that's going to fix you. I actually tried that. It, it, it did not improve my mood, and it did not improve my physical experience either. So trying all these things, but at one point, at one point recognizing that present moment mindfulness was such a refuge present moment of just landing in the body, being really present, then you'd feel there's lots of moments of pain or stiffness or unpleasant that weren't killer, but that uh, the not being with it led into all this future thinking and what and this and blame and whatever and what to do and no way to see clearly. Present moment mindfulness. Oh, whatever the mind, whatever's going to be the future, who knows? It's like this now. 
And that, I, I learned so much. The mind would start off into the future. I'd be trying to clean the bathtub and I could hardly, you know, bend over to do it. And I, oh, the no, no. What's happening now? It's like this. It's unpleasant. Okay. So freeing. And out of that, really, this real sense of compassion, not I decided I should be compassionate. That has never worked for me. But just being with it, this sense of compassion for the, the body, which didn't really feel like me. Just taking care of it instead of hating it. That seems obvious. And then from that place of being really present, the attention kind of cleared and was able to, to make decisions of what to do, not based on fear, not based on wild hopes. You try things. I tried the diet. I could see it didn't make me happy, plus it didn't work. So I stopped doing that diet. Go to Arizona and hide in the corner? I don't think so. Maybe I'll go with my friends to India. That's what I did. They were with me. They helped me up and down into the, into the tuk-tuks and stuff, you know. And I went back to drinking a lot of chai and eating chapatis, and I was really happy. <laughs> I didn't get worse. But then just see, you can, you can make decisions not based on the fear or the aversion, but you're, you're, you're being clearly present with it. I could see if something made it worse. You could take care. I could see if it didn't matter. You could take care but just the ability to be present with the unpleasant, it's, it frees our heart and mind from all this unnecessary suffering and confusion of separation. So, there was one line, oh yes, if I can find it. From Mingyur Rinpoche. He speaks of a peace that is not dependent on the presence or absence of any pleasant or unpleasant feeling. Peace is dependent on just our total presence of mindfulness, wisdom in this moment. Whatever this moment is, it's the moment that reveals the truth. As Dogen said, if you can't find the truth right where you are, where do you expect to find it? So thank you for your kind and patient attention. Let's just sit for a moment. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.